Well, we're continuing in our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning, but before we begin, you know, every month I've been suggesting a particular book for us to read throughout this year in light of our focus on spiritual transformation. And the book I featured this month was a book called Respectable Sins uh, by Jerry Bridges. So some of you may have heard of Jerry Bridges before. He's been around, well, he's no longer, he's in glory now, but, um, but with Navigators and has written so many books uh, that I know have impacted my life personally, even back in my college days about holiness and developing these things in our lives. And, and this, this book, Respectable Sins, is, is an excellent one. Let me just read the back of the book for you. It says, have Christians become so preoccupied with the major sins of our society that we have lost sight of our need to deal with our own more subtle sins? Jerry Bridges addresses a dozen clusters of specific quote-unquote acceptable sins that we tend to tolerate in ourselves, such as jealousy, anger, judgmentalism, selfishness, and pride. Now, Jerry writes not from a height of spiritual accomplishment, but from the trenches of his own battles with sin. In his admonitions, Jerry offers a message of hope in the profound mercy of the gospel and the transforming grace of God as the means to overcome our respectable sins. So I would really highly recommend this book to you. Uh, this particular edition actually comes with a study guide in it, and you can also purchase a separate study guide. So if your small group is looking for a book to study, I would suggest this book. Or if you don't have a small group, form one. You know, it's really easy. You just go ask people, hey, would you like to get together for nine weeks and study this book together? And we can all grow in Christ. Very easy to do. You don't need our permission. You have it. Go form a group. You know, get a book and do something. So, so I really encourage you to read that excellent book. You will be blessed by, by that book. So while we're in, a, in the Gospel of Luke and we're returning to chapter 16 today, but Luke tells two lengthy stories in his Gospel about two rich men. And one starts in Luke 16 after the passage that we're looking at today. And it says this, Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angel to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died, and he was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us you there and you, uh, you, there is fixed a great chasm in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, that they may also not, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. 
Well, then a little later on, there's the second story of a second rich man in Luke 19. Jesus entered, and it was passing through Jericho, and behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature, and he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back five times, four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So why these stories? It's because Luke is very concerned for his readers that we display an authentic Christian discipleship. And since one's use of money is so revealing about a person's character and spirituality, Luke records significant portions of Jesus' teaching on the topic of money. We've seen it before. We'll see it again today. You see, well, in each of these passages, we'll get to them in the coming weeks, but this morning we're going to look at the one that begins it all in Luke 16, verses 1 through 18. And we'll take a look at Jesus' parable of the shrewd steward. And we'll read it as we go. It can be a very difficult passage to understand and apply, but by the end, I think you'll see that the lesson is actually quite simple. God would have us use his money to move his purposes forward. God would have us use his money to move his purposes forward. And Luke records this parable, and he focuses on the contrast between the way faithful followers of Jesus use their money. And we see that in verses 1 to 13, and how the scoffing religious leaders, scoffers of Jesus, use their money. And we see that in verses 14 to 18. Now, in this chapter, verse, chapter 16, we have these two parables that are actually next to each other the parable of the shrewd steward, and then the one I already read for you, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And these speak to, together, the mixed blessings of wealth, something that we all experience each and every day because most of us in this room are considered pretty rich, according to the Bible. And we understand the struggle between both the biblical focus of enjoying what God gives you, but also at the same time being responsible with what he gives you. And most of us know this, this challenge. Well, today, I pray that we'll be encouraged by this parable that we can use God's money to move his purposes forward and the awesome privilege it is to be in that situation. So first of all, we learn about the disciples of Jesus and their money. This parable, again, is one of the most difficult parables to understand and interpret and apply. And that's because Jesus, as you read this parable, is commanding his disciples to be shrewd. We tend not to think that that's a spiritual thing, to be shrewd, but Jesus says it is in this passage, and he's actually using this shady estate manager to be our example. And we're wondering and scratching our head, we're not quite sure what to make of this particular parable. But let's listen to it. 
So the parable of the shrewd steward begins in chapter 16, verse 1. So he, Jesus, said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So, again, the story is addressed to Jesus' disciples, and he wants his, them to learn something. He wants us to learn something from this illustration of the use of money. So what's going on here? Well, we have this certain estate manager who's accused by many people of mismanaging the owner's funds. He's been squandering resources, at least he's been mishandling things, neglecting the owner's interests in his own money. So the owner believes all these reports in the story, and he fires his estate manager, uh, demanding a final accounting before he's released. So apparently the charges are true, because at least in the story, the manager doesn't protest. Well, this final accounting might be for the purpose of verifying all the charges, or it could be just in preparing for a new manager that's going to be coming on the scene. So this particular manager considers his dismal situation, and he only has a few options in front of him, it seems. He considers that he's really not cut out to being a laborer, and he doesn't want to be a beggar. So in other words, he's being fired, and so he's thinking about, well, what job am I going to get next? And, of course, he's thinking, well, who would, who would hire a guy that got fired for mismanagement of funds anyway? I mean, people aren't going to hire this guy. And he's going to have to develop a plan that's going to lend him favor with people and oblige him to others. And so that he's going to be shown hospitality and probably offered then another job. And so his plan is that he's going to reduce the outstanding debt of some of the estate's largest debtors, people who borrowed the most. And perhaps his best borrowers. And so two are mentioned uh, in the storyline. One owes approximately 850 gallons of olive oil, and the other one owes approximately 1,100 bushels of wheat. Now it's hard to be precise with these numbers because, but it's about the yield of 150 trees and uh, 100 acres, but the debts are owed in commodities. And oral tradition has it that that's probably the case to obscure the interest and the commission that gets added on. Because it's not likely in the storyline that people are actually borrowing the commodities. That's just the currency in which they have to pay it back. And it's a really easy way to sort of add things in on top of what's really owed. So the manager has each of them rewrite their notes. One gets a 50% reduction, the other gets a 20% reduction. And uh, it suggested the real, the real value of these reductions are about 16 months of wages. So it's a pretty significant reduction, of course, 
and it's most likely that the reduction is not in the principal. So in other words, the manager is not having them actually cut what they owe the owner. What he's giving them a, a pass on is the interest and or commission that's owed to him as the actual manager of the estate and the funds. So in other words, you see, he's planning ahead. He's giving back to them, if you will, what they would owe him personally as the manager. And so the owner learns of this plan, and that explains, of course, why he praises this manager, right? Because he's an unrighteous steward, okay, but he's really shrewd. I mean, what a smart guy. It's a great plan because he's now going to have some friends, when he's fired shortly, that are going to like him. And in fact, the owner probably likes the plan too because, well, now he's looked at as a great guy because these people are really happy that they owe him less money in the community. So his reputation goes up as well. Well, here's the application then to Jesus' disciples. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth or mammon, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you, do not, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will... Ha Hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see, so the application of the parable is not found in the correspondence with the characters in the story, like normally is the case when you read a parable. But the application is found in the, de in the, in the details of the characters' actions, in the story. So in other words, not the people themselves, but in what they're doing and handling money wisely. And later on, Jesus is going to bring up the stewardship concept as well. So Jesus comments, this will help you understand it. So Jesus comments that the sons of this age, these are unbelievers, they're more shrewd or prudent, if you will, in their dealings with money in the temporal sphere than the sons of light or believers are in that sphere. Okay, that's the first level. There's more to come, right? That's the thing. The sons of this world are more shrewd, more prudent with their use of money than the sons of light or believers are in this realm. But more than that, and more importantly, they are more shrewd in that realm than, than these believers even are in relation to their eternal destiny. And that's more important. And that's where Jesus is taking this parable. It gets filled out in the rest of the passage. And his point is, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way. The sons of light should actually be more shrewd than the sons of this age. And so his application is to encourage his disciples, first of all, to use their money, to use their worldly wealth to make friends. Now money is commonly referred to, and it's called here, mammon of unrighteousness in some of your translations. That's because that's what money tends to bring out of people. Unrighteousness. Right? It doesn't have to, but it often does. And notice that it's not a spiritual virtue in this parable. 
And the book of Proverbs and other places in Scripture would say the same thing. It's not a spiritual virtue to be naive about money. It's not. But it's interesting that so many Christians seem to think it is a virtue to be naive about money. I mean, it's not more spiritual to decide, I'm going to have less. It's not necessarily more spiritual to just sort of block that stuff out of your life and say, I'm not going to care about it, I'm not going to worry about it. That's not more virtuous. There's a further twist on actually what Jesus is saying here in his application there in in verse 9, these friends that he's talking about most likely are referring to the poor and needy among the people of God or the people who will be joining the people of God very shortly, and it's they then who will receive you into your eternal reward and glory and welcome you at that time. And so money is going to fail. It's going to run out. And in other words, our, our situation, everybody's is going to radically change at death. And so all of us should, in a sense, make plans. And so while we have money, and remember he's addressing the disciples here, you should use it to enhance your future eternal dwellings. That's what Jesus is saying. In other words, when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, when you receive your full inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. So generosity and charity shows foresight. In other words, we might say that's spiritual shrewdness. Using the resources that God has given you to gain in the future. And it testifies, in fact, that you actually are a child, a son of the light, and not a son of this age, because you use your money for eternal purposes and for God's purposes and not for selfish purposes and for your own temporal benefits only. Well, then we get to verses 10 and 11, 10 to 13. Actually, it continues, Jesus continues, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If you've been not faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who's going to give you true riches? And if you haven't been faithful in that which is another's, well, who's going to give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he's going to hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. So here Jesus goes on to make some further comments on stewardship of the resources that we've been giving using this, this larger image. And again, it's the actions of the people in the parable, not the characters themselves, is where the application comes from, and that's what you see right here in how Jesus applies it. And he starts off in verse 10 with this principle of faithfulness and unrighteousness versus it in management, carrying over from the smaller to the larger. And we all know it's true. He's just stating a truth that the parable itself illustrates for us, and we've seen it. We see it in our lives. We've seen it in our children. People that are faithful in the small and in the right things will likely be faithful in the, in the larger things. And likewise, the opposite. We've seen it with employees. We've seen it perhaps even in ourselves. And then verse 11, Jesus makes it clear that he's comparing one's use of money, which is a really little thing, to true riches, which is the big thing. The true riches are spiritual truths, significant spiritual service, a future in the kingdom of God. And he presses the matter even harder in verse 12 by reminding us that money, the money we have is truly not our own. That's what he means when he says it's not to be used on ourselves, it's God's money. That he is the another in the passage. 
So if we can't even use those resources that God gives us in this temporal sphere properly, why would he ever give you spiritual resources to be entrusted with? Spiritual ministries of significance. We have to use the small things well to be entrusted with even greater things. So the application of the parable summarized in verse 13, we given the wealth of another, God. And the open question from the parable, remember I taught you a few weeks ago that parables, that what makes one of the features of them that makes them a unique piece of literature is that they put a burden on the reader that you are involved automatically in the parable and you have to answer a question and there's always an implied question and the implied question is here is can God trust you? How much can he trust you? That's the question before us. You see, we can have wealth and God. That's not the problem but we can't serve both wealth and God. The fact is, we do have wealth. Every one of us has it. The encouragement is to get our wealth in order so that we can purposefully and spiritually use it for the kingdom of God. This is how disciples of Jesus use their money. Christians should be prudent with money, with an eternal and God and others perspective. Just as the non-Christians in our lives are prudent with their temporal money for themselves. And, uh, and, and only themselves, and that perspective. And look at how astute worldly people are when it comes to spending money on themselves. I mean, they're pretty shrewd about it. So similarly, we should be shrewd about how we spend money on other people and how we spend money to advance the kingdom of God and to use it in those purposes. God would have us use his money, his resources. Everything you have is his. Everything we have is his. And to use it for his purposes going forward. So, no, in contrast to Jesus' disciples after he tells this parable and gives the application very directly, it's what do we learn about scoffers and how they use their money in contrast? So, you'll see these topics, they seem disconnected at first, but you'll see that they're very tightly connected. These quick statements in verses 14 to 18, we'll realize that these little topics fit in very well with exactly what Jesus is being talking about and of course we want to stay on the main point which is the parable that Jesus told and not get sidetracked on all these other issues that he's using primarily as illustrations in this passage and so we read right away about scoffers and their greed the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed them so you see right away we're on topic the topic's money and the topic is scoffing at what Jesus just said and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So these Pharisees are characterized by lovers as being lovers of money. That's who they are. And because this is true, when they hear a parable like what Jesus just told, they scoff at it. And the application. Now, hopefully no one here is a scoffer, a scoffer and is in that group. But, you know, they have mixed up values. And it's all the worse because these people are supposed to be religious leaders. But they're really members of the sons of this age, the sons of darkness. They're not sons of the light. 
And the Apostle Paul would later warn us against the love of money and against those who love so love money so much. So in 1 Timothy 6.10, for example, we read, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching. Do you see the connection? That's what Jesus is showing us. Some who have loved money so much, they've wandered away from the faith. What a great description of a Pharisee. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul's talking about, reflecting on the teaching of Jesus. In the 2 Timothy 3.1, the Apostle Paul also teaches, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness. Although they've denied its power, avoid such men as these. Again, the Apostle Paul, reflecting on all these things that our Lord taught, hold a form of godliness. That's exactly what the Pharisees were. You look at them from the outside, oh, they look like really religious people. That's just the form they keep, the formalities, going through the motions, but inside, very corrupt. They didn't love God as much as they loved money. That's what the Apostle Paul's talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. And so Jesus summarizes the Pharisees' problem as valuing worldly, what worldly men value and not what God values. They're self-justifying people for their hypocrisy. Though everybody looks at them and they don't see necessarily what's going on inside. And so they think the Pharisees are the best of all people. Look at these really smart, really religious, really respected people that God has blessed with so much money. They must be loved by God. That's how they see them. That's how the Pharisees want to be seen. And the impression that we get is that they have a very detestable value system. They justify themselves and they play at piousness. And don't be like them. Don't be like people like this. And don't hang out with them. God knows the truth about these people, about all of them, and he is definitely not impressed. God's values are radically different. God hates greed. But the Pharisees are greedy people. God loves generosity. God hates pride, but the Pharisees are full of pride. God loves humility. God hates religious show and showmanship. He loves religious truth. And what we learn from this paragraph is that being a lover of money is really just the beginning of many, many more problems to come, which is what the next section is about in this passage, because Jesus is not done with them yet. And he says then next in verse 16 to 18, the law and the prophets were here until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Well, this section illustrates how being a lover of money automatically, though perhaps gradually, results in abandoning service to God for service to money. 
Remember, that's what he said earlier in verse 13. You can't serve both. You're going to pick one. And so the matter of greatest service to God would be believing and upholding and loving his word. That's where he begins in verse 16. Faithfulness and serving God in every area of our life flows forth from this basic commitment. And Jesus is saying that their greed has led to their loss of this in their lives, in these leaders' lives. The law and the prophets is a way of referring to all of the Old Testament scriptures, and it was preached faithfully, he's saying. That is, it was preached about the Messiah who is to come, that is, himself, by all the prophets, all the way until the transition came with John the Baptist comes on the scene. But until then, Jesus is saying, the prophets faithfully proclaimed it, and they faithfully proclaimed that all the Old Testament law and the prophets speak about me the Messiah. And since then, Jesus said, since John came on the scene a little while ago, a couple years ago in our storyline, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached by Jesus. Jesus came preaching the gospel kingdom and his disciples. He sent them out to preach the gospel kingdom. We're still doing that today. We're preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And his point is that this gospel is the faithful fulfillment of the law and the prophets because it culminates eventually in what we'll read about in the gospel of Luke when Jesus would offer himself up and die on the cross for our sins and be raised to life for our justification, and that there is forgiveness in his name and is proclaimed for him, and all a person has to do is put their faith in this Jesus, and they will be saved. In fact, Jesus has been saying here, he's saying here, that people, since John started preaching, and he started preaching, and his disciples started preaching, I mean, people are coming into the kingdom in droves. It's like finally somebody explained it clearly, and doesn't have all this hypocrisy mixed up in it. And it's easy to get into the kingdom by believing in the Messiah. But interestingly, very few Pharisees have been entering the kingdom. We haven't seen any of them so far in the Gospel of Luke. The greedy ones, they don't get in. Then verse 17, notice how Jesus emphasizes the value of Scripture here and its fulfillment by articulating its truthfulness down to the smallest detail and its ever-enduring quality. You know, it's a side note, but be sure to value Scripture like Jesus values Scripture. I don't know if you've had many conversations these days with people who will self-describe themselves as deconstructing their faith and then saying they're reconstructing it in a biblical way. I've had a number of those conversations. And one of the things that often needs to be pointed out to people that are on that journey, which is fine, I love talking to those people, is it's be sure that you value Scripture the way Jesus values Scripture. If you want to be like Jesus, which often these people say they do. But even in our own lives, be sure you value Scripture down to its smallest detail and realize that it has an enduring quality throughout all of eternity. You see, Jesus is implying the Pharisees don't value it this way. They don't value it as they should, although they're great teachers. And the proof above all proof that they don't is they're not entering the kingdom. That's proof. Because if they really believed it, then they would force their way into it. They would believe in Jesus, you see. And then we get to verse 18. Oh, we think initially when we read verse 18, oh, this is unrelated. Who stuck this in later? But you know what it really is, verse 18? 
It's Jesus' mic drop. That's what it is. It's his conclusion, and boom, this is it. And so he says to them, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Oh, this is very related. You see, the Pharisees didn't value the teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage. They were very dismissive at this time on what Scripture taught about these topics. See, they held at this time, this group of men, various different forms of no-fault divorce and okayed it in the community at a great level of laxity. These men were supposed to be teachers of the law and uphold God's righteousness. In Malachi 2.16, it's very clear. The Lord says, I hate divorce. I mean, what else do you need to say? And instead, these Pharisees were allowing people to divorce and remarry to fulfill both their adulterous, sensual passions, but also for greediness. And they've let it become so commonplace at the time of Jesus, and they destigmatized the behavior to such a point that among the people of God, it wasn't even seen as too big of a deal always. So they minimize scripture and its importance in these matters, but Jesus is the one that upheld it. That's why it's related to this passage, because it is a great illustration of being a lover of money and a lover of yourself and somebody who doesn't take God's word seriously. Now, the matter of divorce and remarriage, of course, isn't really being discussed at length in this passage. If you're interested in that, Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19 have very extensive discussions of it, and you can look at that on your own, and we'll discuss it some other time. But the historic position of the church is very simple, and that is that among the people of God, divorce and remarriage is permitted only in two cases, and that's in adultery and in desertion. That's the standard Christian answer. I know there are a lot of varieties that people hold. Pick whatever you want. But that's what the historic position of the church is. Now, of course, so it's really simple, but each life situation has many, many variables in it that need to be discussed and understood. We all know that because all of our lives have been touched by this. So while it's simple, it's never easy. There are always complicated situations, and every situation is unique. So if you need help in getting right with God or finding forgiveness and healing, I would be glad to meet with you and help you through that process. But let's not forget the main point of the passage that we're looking at today. It's not to discuss divorce and remarriage. It's about how to not love money, not be greedy. It's about those things. Not being estranged from the word of God, but rather living righteously. That's what our passage is about. Do you observe in our passage that what greed does to one's self-perception? It makes people think too highly of themselves. That's what happens. Look at verses 14 and 15. Greed also affects our view of scripture. It makes people think that scripture is of little importance. Verses 16 and 17. Greed also affects our view of Jesus Christ. You become a scoffer at Jesus. You don't like his teaching on money because you like your own teaching on money. In verse 14. Scoffers of Jesus and their money are very different, you see, than the disciples of Jesus and how they use their money. We're, not, we're all disciples here. 
We're not scoffers, but we can still learn a lot of valuable lessons about greed by looking at them. That saves us a lot of grief if we're vigilant. Avoid greed because it'll lead you to self-justification in your life and your spirituality. You've probably seen it. You've probably maybe even felt it, that when your needs are met, somehow we can automatically think, well, then we must be good with God. And we stop pursuing him. We should avoid greed because it can also atrophy your love of scripture and lead you to apathy in spiritual matters. Matters You've probably seen this too and, and, and even felt it yourself is that money can bring a lot of pleasure in our life. But sometimes then we start to think that I've already attained the good life. Why would I need the abundant life that Jesus provides? Or maybe this is all there is to that. So we have to avoid greed. And as disciples, we renounce that way. And, and we seek to use God's money to move God's purposes forward. So the parable of the shrewd manner, a shrewd manager is the main point of the text, of course, that we're looking at today. And it simply teaches concerning your money that be generous, be faithful, and serve God first. Jesus is really asking for more from his disciples in this passage than stewardship in the sense in which the connotation usually comes across to us these days in the sense that we tend to think that stewardship and conservation are synonyms, but they're not. In this passage, Jesus is saying that he wants us to be shrewd users of his resources, spenders of his money. There are other parables about don't bury it in the ground type of thing. And I think there's an immediate practical benefit if we just vary the use of the terms in our mind and really take to heart what's being said in this parable this morning. The goal is not, when you read this, because the passage isn't as focused on it, to be a good steward. Now, if you understand steward in the right sense, fine. But if you think of stewardship and it immediately brings up in your mind, I need to conserve things, then you're missing the point. Because in this passage, what if we talked instead about being shrewd stewards? And, and the emphasis there is, how can I be sharper in my judgment? How can I be more astute with what I have and what is around me? I mean, surely being a good steward involves many, many other things. But being shrewd is one of those things. Not being unethical. We're not talking about being unethical. We're talking about being wise, judicious, shrewd, smart. Don't be outsmarted by other people who are unethical. Jesus' whole point is telling his disciples this parable is for us to understand that we would use his money properly for moving his purposes forward. So we can all think about where and how we're shrewdly investing his money for kingdom purposes. As Christians, of course, we give our tithes and offerings to God through our local churches, but even more than that, Christians are to be, in a sense, like, like venture capitalists, looking for opportunities to invest in the kingdom of God. So, a couple ideas come up from this passage right away. One is by giving to needy people, by giving to our benevolence offering that we're going to be taking today by relief efforts that come our way because so many tragedies happen in the world. You can be a part of that. By giving especially to the mission of God that's focused on spreading the gospel around the world, there's so many places we can invest our funds 
in evangelism and discipleship and church planting and leadership development, and the list goes on and on, to be investing in those things. I mean, we here in this room together, we have a lot of money. A lot of money that's entrusted to us. Just think what we could accomplish with all that money. And also consider what we've already accomplished together. There's so much. It's awesome when you think about it. The things that we have been allowed to do as a medium-sized congregation, if you will. And how God has used our resources and our generosity and our faith to spread the gospel around the world. It's great to be a part of that. It feels good to be a part of it. And it should. This is a congregation that largely already lives the parable of the shrewd steward. So be encouraged and be more shrewd than you even are. Amen. Well, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning here in a moment. So the men that are going to help me, if you please come forward.